So, why did you pick this story? It's interesting, this one, because it actually, um, when the paintings, uh, will, well, the paintings will be in different arrangements on the, the wall. Do I need to stand back? Um, but it'll actually be a companion piece for another painting. So this is chapter 21, uh, one of the paintings that's already painted, which is currently upstairs, uh, is chapter 20. Uh, some of you might remember the painting where there's another coin in a hand, um, which was about the, the gift to Caesar, what is Caesar's gift to God, what is God's passage. So I thought it was interesting, these two paintings as uh, friends for one another. Um, and, and those verses are actually just about smack bang beside each other, going from one chapter to the, to the next. Um, so the, the story made me curious. Okay. And uh, as I look at it, and, and actually I, I hesitate to ask this question because I don't want to close anything down because I, I look at it, I want to ask you when you were thinking about the expression hmm. that, that, that you would focus on. Obviously, I know that you worked for, from photographs, but presumably you took a number of photographs and made a decision. Mm. Um, were you, were, what were you thinking about in terms of how you would ask Janine to pose for, for this one? Um, I, I, I decided not to think about that in advance. Um, sometimes when you're working with a model, um, you just need to see what comes up. Okay. Uh, and and we, we took a number of photographs and uh, and and then I'll go through an editing process of to like that one or that one um, and uh, and swipe away the ones that I've decided not to use and there was just something about the the look in her face there and and there's there's a an expression on the face that I really like and it depends who the audience is. Um, because the, I'm, I'm very, always very mindful that there are uh, three elements to a piece of artwork. There's, and they all begin with C, like a Church of Scotland sermon. Um, there's, there's the craft, you know, there's, there's the, the actual methods and techniques that you're using to create the painting. There's the concept, the ideas behind it. But there's the crowd, the, the audience that are coming to view the painting. And, and who... Who are you that's looking at this? And I, I think about the story, uh, and is this an offering made, uh, and, and, is, and Jesus is being the viewer here? Or is this the, the temple officials that are there? Um, and I had a really interesting conversation with uh, one person who wondered, should the church have actually accepted that, that offering? If this is all that this lady has, was that right to take that? It's, it's, it's one thing to offer. It's another thing to accept. Um, so the, the role of the audience uh, in, a, in a painting is, it really intrigues me. And it's, it's the one thing you can't really control as well. Uh, bit, I didn't really give you notice of this question, but... Obviously, you, the whole point of painting these paintings live when the cafe is open is that you have 
conversations and encounters with random people who mm. come up and interrupt you while you're working and, and you chat to them. Do you, did you have, well, I think you, you already quoted some of the conversations that you had in, in the video that we just saw that uh, somebody was concerned that it was three coins and not two and that biblical accuracy was being... There, there were three people that said that. Really? And the, they, they had something in common. Uh, well, two things in common. They were all men and they were all Church of Scotland ministers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just reassured that... No, I was going to say reassured that they knew that there were three, two and not three. Well, anyway, there you go. <laughs> well, he wasn't one of them. Okay. Um, but it's, it's interesting. You, you get these conversations that, uh, that go on, and, and there are certain paintings that I've done that get more conversation than others, and this painting here was, was one of the ones that generated a lot of conversation. Um, and there was one lady uh, who was sitting over there at the back wall having a, having a cuppa. And I was, I'd been working on the painting over here and I went to uh, wash some brushes. And she stopped me, excuse me. And she said the, the words that an awful lot of people say to me, are, are you the artist? I, I, in, a, in a lot of contexts, I, I don't have a name. This, this even came up at Ross's wedding a few weeks ago. I'd introduce myself to, to people and, uh, and say, oh, how do you know us? Oh, oh, we work together. Are you the artist? Yeah. Yeah, so this lady says, are you the artist? I'm, yes, I'm the artist. Uh, I don't know why she was even asking me. She watched me paint the thing. She <laughs> was <laughs> you're vandalizing it. Yeah. <laughs> but she says, who is that lady? I says, uh, it's, it's my friend Janine. She comes to the Wednesday service. She's my next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and but there's, there, is, uh, there seems to be something ab- ab- about um, the face uh, there. Uh, one person pointed out to me uh, that with all the faces that I've painted so far, any time that women have been in the paintings, they've all been young women. Um, and that was really interesting to reflect on, actually, how uh, stylistically you go about painting different faces. So that's, that was really uh, enjoyable to explore. Good. And uh, this one is different from the others. You used a different technique. I did. I did. Um, if, if anyone's interested in, uh, in technical art things, uh, most of the paintings that are around were uh, using a, a kind of old, uh, hundreds of years old style where you paint in, in different layers, but this is uh, a technique called a la prima, where you put all the paint on at once. Um, so instead of first considering shape and then form and then colour separately, uh, which is quite a logical way to go about that, you need to juggle all those things uh, in, in your mind at, at the same time. But it, was, uh, it, it does give a, a vibrance. It does. It's, it's, I mean, visibly lighter than the others, which are quite, are quite dark, some of them. Um, I think all of my paintings have ever been done a la prima. <laughs> generally, I find it all goes to brown. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the trick, not just to mush them all together. But it's, yeah, uh, I've never got beyond that one. So. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Ian. Thanks very much. Can we just acknowledge Ian's work? We're not, we're not finished with this painting, but I want to let you have a conversation now about it. So if you've got a Bible, whether it's on your phone or you want to come and grab one here, um, Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. We're gonna, I'm going to preach on it. Um, 
uh, in just a little bit. But before we get to that, I just want to invite you to read those four verses, because they are just four verses. And then I want you to reflect on, on this painting. This is just Ian, not just, this is Ian's interpretation in a Glasgow contemporary context with the help of, of Janine, and, and we've heard some of Janine's own reflections. But as you read those four verses, what do you see in the face of this uh, character here? What expressions do you see? And how do you connect what you see in the passage and what that widow might have been thinking or feeling? And, and how do you connect? What do you see in the face of this uh, suggested widow uh, here? And I'm not even going to put some words or adjectives into your head because that will just close down the discussion. So have a little chat around the table about the four verses and about uh, how the woman might have been thinking or feeling and what the expression on her face might suggest. Okay, we'll just give you five minutes to have a little chat about that. Okay. So let me uh, bring you back from... Uh, no, no, I'm not going to come around with a microphone or anything like that. You've had that conversation, and, and maybe some of the points that I make just now will, will uh, echo what you've talked about, and maybe the most important thing that you will come, leave here today with will be the thing that occurred to you as you were studying and, and reflecting on those four verses of Scripture yourself. Let me just read them again. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Amen. May God bless this reading to our understanding. I was in two minds, Alistair, yesterday to give you a phone and invite you to bring in the copper coins. Uh, I know that you have two copper coins, do you not, in your house that are very small and tiny like the ones that may well have been those that the widow put in. Yeah, that's what I mean. Let, let me just ask you to say what, you, what you've got and where you got it from. I got it a long time ago. I think it was in Guernsey I bought it, in fact. It is actually the widow's mite coin with the wheat sheaf on it. So it's actually, is it original or is it a copy? No, it's an original coin from the Holy Land, yeah. It's the one that they called the widow's mite with the wheat sheaf on it, yeah. So it's actual, Alistair's actually got one of those coins. And I've seen them, it's absolutely tiny and it's wafer thin, isn't it? But I think it's the wheat sheaf on. It's been in the drawer for ages. I'll have to dig it out. <laughs> it's, it's very small, so make sure you, you haven't lost it. Uh, and so the, these, these coins were, were tiny, wafer-thin fragments of metal worth uh, probably the equivalent. Uh, no, most of you guys are too young to remember. How many, uh, how many people here remember half peas? Okay, see, it's depressing. <laughs> Let's go one further. How many people remember farthings? Yes, okay, all right. There's a whole generation here going, what? <laughs> this is a really small passage, just four verses, a small passage for a small offering. 
Uh, but as we will see, and as we see in the Gospels, so often uh, size is not all that it seems. And indeed, size is often turned on its head where Jesus is concerned. And that which seems small uh, or hopeless or powerless or weak or useless becomes the very thing that in the hands of Jesus or combined with uh, faith um, becomes something very big. I suppose the, the classic text that maybe you're already thinking about, Mark chapter 4, again Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. We have the Gospels because they were written down for us. And we take for granted the fact that we have the Gospels which were written down for us, but they were written down, as I think I've said before, quite a considerable period of time after the time when Jesus actually wrote them. The Hebrew tradition was very good because people, not many people got trained in writing, reading and writing, and certainly materials to read and write were, were too expensive. I mean, you can walk into a supermarket and pick up a, jo a jotter for 50p or a pound. You can buy a pack of biros for a pound. I mean, for us, access to reading and writing implements is just, we take it for granted. I mean, people will give you courtesy pens for nothing. But in that world, access to reading and writing implements was costly and, and, and the preserve of the privileged few. And for the vast majority of people, faithful memory, faithful recording of stories in, in here, and, and the strict preservation of the oral tradition, where stories were passed on uh, in the same way that, that uh, historically and culturally folk tales are passed on. In the past few weeks, we've been thinking about the resurrection narratives the little clutch of stories in the period between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension. And already two weeks ago, we looked at the, or when Callum was preaching, we took the, the story of, of the Jesus' ascension. And last week, we thought about that point where they, they had to vote in a new apostle to replace Judas. And next week, we'll get to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. So, I'm not going to you know, say that I know for sure what the apostles and the disciples and the, uh, the women and everybody else, there were 120 of them, a small church had already formed. And I don't know what they were actually talking about, but I, it wouldn't be too much to suggest that already they were beginning to remember and record up here and in conversation the stories that Jesus told. Let me remind you where they are the apostles, because last week we, we recognized that they went with Jesus to the Mount of Olives where He was taken up from before them, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And then we're told that they made the journey from the Mount of Olives, and so they therefore went down the road that Jesus just five weeks previously had gone down on a colt. So it's only five weeks since they made that journey under very different circumstances. 
It's only four weeks since, as they passed the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John could remember being there with Jesus in anguish, and they could remember that this was the place where Judas, their traitor friend, had led the temple guard to have Jesus arrested just at the bottom of that hill. And they journeyed back into Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension, and they went, we're told, to an upstairs room. It was an upstairs room where Jesus told them to go and share the Passover meal. And so, even the journey that they made from the Mount of Olives reminded them of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' arrest and betrayal by Judas. Peter would remember this was the place he cut Malchus's ear off, and Jesus healed it. And they carried on a journey into Jerusalem, no doubt following some of the streets and the route that Jesus, under arrest, was forced to walk. And maybe some of their route to that upstairs room took them in the streets that Jesus walked through as He went on His way to Golgotha. And so, memories are everywhere. And they're in this upstairs room, which may well have been the room where they ate the Last Supper with, the disciples, with, the, with Jesus may well have been the room where they were hiding away with the doors locked for fear of the Jews when Jesus came and stood among them, and a week later came and stood among them again to reveal His wounds to Thomas. Memories are everywhere. And in the context of that memory, I wonder if they were remembering also what Jesus taught because we know that from the beginning of the book of Acts, they were going to the temple every day to worship. Every day, it says. Let's just fast forward to the book of Acts and, and uh, chapter 2, that famous passage that describes the most perfect early church where there were no problems, where it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So we know they're still hanging around the temple. They're still in Jerusalem, which means that they're still going to the temple courts, which means that every day they're watching people put their offerings in because that's what people did every day. So here they are. Pentecost is coming up. I'm going to move this guy. I like to flail a little when I'm preaching. <laughs> So they're going to the temple courts every day because they're still in Jerusalem watching people put their offerings in and remembering it's only a matter of weeks since Jesus stood on these steps teaching the people, provoking the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Memories are everywhere. And they were still putting their offerings in, I presume. And perhaps as a group they're uncertain about what this is going to look like. They've been back to Galilee, caught another massive catch of fish, had breakfast with Jesus on the shore. And so He's called them again to come follow Me and leave behind the things that put bread and fish on the table and kept their mouths fed. So where's the money coming from? I wonder how long it was after Jesus' death and resurrection and Judas' departure, that they discovered that there was not quite as money in the common purse as the accounts said there ought to be. I wonder how quickly they discovered that Judas was a thief, as John tells us. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Well, they didn't know that while he was still around, right? 
Embezzling is the sort of thing you find later on. When the accounts are checked and the person is no longer there, and you suddenly discover that what you thought you had as the common purse isn't quite as fat as you imagined it. And so here is a group of 120 people in there in a society that lives hand to mouth. And it's in that context, I wonder if they remembered or what this parable, not this parable, sorry, this episode of this widow putting in her coin said to them. And what does it say to you? What does it say? As we reflect on this poor widow, how easily as she was putting or preparing to put her offering in, she could have looked at the rich with their flowing clothes and robes and their external signs of wealth and opulence. How easy to imagine when rich people are dropping large bags of cash in the offering with great ostentation, making sure that people can see. How easy to imagine when all you have to live on is two copper coins that you would say to yourself, do you know what? I think they can manage without these. (laughs) I don't think these are going to make a whole heap of difference. I'll just hang on to them. But she didn't. Here's a woman with every excuse in the eyes of society. We're told that she was a poor widow. Now, maybe she was a poor widow because, as I'm sure you're aware, in certainly Middle Eastern and Middle uh, Italian culture as well, but there were often visible external signs of a woman's status. And so, how did we know that she was a widow? Because presumably she dressed like a widow. She wore clothes that indicated to everybody else her uh, marital status. And therefore, as a widow, she was dependent on whatever charity she might receive. As a widow, she was dependent on whatever uh, provision others might make for her. I don't know if she had kids. Details were not given that we might long to know. All we know is that she had nothing, and yet she put in these two wafer-thin little copper coins. The rich put in a little because this is one of these things that can fry your head if you think about it. Because they put in a lot, but it was really a little. (laughs) And she put in a little, but it was really a lot. When is a little a lot, and when is a lot a little? Well, it's all relative, isn't it? It's all relative to who you are and where you're coming from. It's all relative to the passion or the commitment or the heart from which it comes, in which case size doesn't matter. But what matters is the heart from which it is coming. Why did she not walk past that offering and think, the rich have got this one, this will sort me out if I can get, you know, a tiny bag of flour or something like that with these two copper coins, well, it will bake me another, another loaf. Because her giving was not, as far as we can tell, coming out of a place of ostentation. I don't think there would be any sense in which she would be making great play of dropping two virtually invisible coins into the offering in amongst the abundance of the rich with their ostentation. 
My thought or suggestion has always been that she slipped her two copper coins in, and that Jesus saw and knew because He is God the context and all that that represented. I doubt He went and interviewed her and said, have you got anything else in the bank, or is this all you have to live on? He knew because He knew because He is the Son of God, and by the Spirit of God, He knew the heart from which this giving came, and that it cost her everything to give it. And so, her offering was discreet, and her offering was costly, and her offering Therefore, presumably, and we don't have any of her own words or thoughts, so we have to draw conclusions from what she did and what Jesus saw, her offering was rooted in a profound faith that if she made God her number one priority in how she abandoned herself and her resources to Him, then she would not be in want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. In company with the widow who fed Elijah, this widow gave up her lot to God. So, what is a lot? The story refuses to tell you how much to put in. It refuses to give you a number which you might like because we like clarity. (laughs) And sometimes in the church, we've made a big thing about numbers. Good, committed Christians are supposed to tithe but there was a story in the New Testament of a man who tithed religiously, and he was the bad guy. He was the Pharisee who put in a tithe, who gave a tithe of everything. And meanwhile, there was a tax collector who beat his breast and would not look up and said, God, have mercy on a sinner. And Jesus said, this man went home justified. So, the Bible doesn't give us a number. It just presents us with a model of this woman's heart, of her discreet determination to rely on God and to give to Him everything that was at her disposal. Jesus' miracles are based on very little. There was a lot of wine from a lot of water in Cana, admittedly. But water is nothing, (laughs) unless you don't have it, of course, when it's everything. But certainly, five loaves and two fish were inconsequential, and yet in the hands of Jesus, sufficient to feed a crowd. And so, this woman, when she put in her two very small copper coins, did so with a quiet obedience, did so with a quiet faith. 
did so with a quiet confidence that her need would be met and that everything that she lacked would be provided for. So, I don't know what it looks like for you to do as she did. It might just have been asking yourself, how costly is my giving to God? How obedient is my giving to God? How much of a priority is my giving to God? And what does it look like? And I'm not necessarily talking about cash, although I am. And I'm not talking about whether you give it here in the box at the back or whether you serve Him with your resources somewhere else in some other way. But I'm just asking you to be in her shoes and ask yourself about your heart, not your wallet or your purse. Because does your heart, does my heart flow with the same kind of faith filled abandonment, because that's what this woman demonstrated. She abandoned herself in faith to God. You know, sometimes there's <laughs> something really liberating and really exciting about just giving it over and letting go of it. You know, okay, two coins have gone. Here we go. Let's create space and a way for God to do His thing, because I now have no insurance policy of my own. I now have nothing except my confidence that He will provide. And what does it look like for you, and let's leave cash aside for a moment, to give up and abandon yourself to God and abandon to God the thing or things that you might otherwise want to hold on to or keep for yourself. What are the things that God is maybe calling you to drop in the offering box, not as something that's going to be a benefit to anyone else, but just because He knows you need rid of it? <laughs> because it's the thing that for you has somewhere in your life become a security. It might be a good thing. It might be a job. It might be a possession. It might be some kind of status, badge, title, or honor. Or it might be a bad thing. It might be a habit, but something that, that is a security blanket for you. What does it look like to take either or any of these things and and, and just say, you know what? I'm going to go cold turkey with you, God. Because I'm intrigued by the heart of this woman. Because this was a woman who discreetly, without a fanfare, or without any expectation that Jesus or anybody else was really looking or noticing, abandoned herself to God. She just quietly did it. You know, and even right here, right now, maybe quietly some of you are dropping into the offering box 
the thing that actually God is asking of you. Or maybe God is challenging you and asking you to consider that compared where you put yourself in this story, because I suspect most of us, not all, I don't know your circumstances, but I know I am one of the rich. And so, is my giving easy? Often it is. I have the security of a bank balance and fallback. So, what does it look like for me or for you to give sacrificially? What does it look like for me and for you to find again that place of real faith where we're actually walking the walk and where we're actually saying, Lord, I want to give you all I've got, all I am. Now, you do the translation because it's between you, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God. (laughs) to work out what, out of all of that, is really bothering you right now. Because generally, I find it's the thing that really bothers us or makes us angry or irritated that is the very point at which God the Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, I'd really like you to think about this, and not just think about it either. And maybe you just actually need to give yourself to Jesus heart and soul again, because you've taken it back. You said it and you meant it, but incrementally, bit by bit, you've scaled back the offering. So, in relative terms, you're like the rich, giving a bit out of a sea of much more that you're keeping for yourself. So, I need to go away and think not just about this passage, but I have to allow, with the help of Ian and Janine, this widow's eyes to challenge me and ask questions of me and disturb me and invite me to think about what's in my hand, not just in fiscal terms, not just in coins, be they three or two, be they copper or pound coins, but what's in my hand because God has put it there? And what will I do with it? And will it hurt? And will I let it hurt if I'm called to give it up? Let's pray together. Two copper coins, four little verses, one widow that burrow into our lives and trouble and disturb and challenge and unsettle and ask hard questions and pierce us with eyes and see beyond the facades of who we are and how we present to how it really is. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us for our lukewarmness, for our poor priorities and for treasuring that which we have no right to hold on to. We are but stewards of what you have gifted us with, 
whether in cash or in other ways. And so we pray, Lord, that as you've in any way disturbed us, so, Lord, you will call us to a new obedience, and in calling, we'll be found ready to answer. Lord, we are so little. We have so little. Even as a church, we are little. But abandoned to you, we know that you can do amazing things. And so renew and strengthen our faith and give to us a heart and passion that says with that poor widow, a resounding, resolute, and determined, yes, amen, to the call to abandon ourselves and what we are to you in faith. And so as we go, or will go shortly, back into this world, we pray for it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you will use us to make a difference in it. We pray for this city that we're part of. We recognize its poverty and brokenness, and that the little that we can do to make a difference seems so small, but we choose to believe that it matters in your hands. Anything is possible. And so, Lord, we pray for those who, in positions of power or wealth or influence, will make decisions that will ripple and trickle down to the very poorest of our city or our nation. And we pray, Lord, that you, by your word and through people who may speak into their lives, will call them to consider and to account for how they use the opportunities they have in making decisions and policy and passing laws and setting the direction of our nation and our cities. Lord, we pray for those who know you as Savior and Lord and have access and influence in places of wealth and importance. And we pray that you will keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, make their hearts and minds resolute and steadfast, and enable them to be an agent of your kingdom in the places that you've put them. But what we pray for the powerful and the rich, we pray for those whose power lies in all sorts of ordinary places that don't look or feel like power, but their influence in community, in family, in the workplace, at the water cooler, in the tutorial room, in a thousand different places. Lord, let us be an influence for Jesus, the fragrance of Jesus, and let our lives be a fragrant offering for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.